part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. I don't know what impresses me the most about our God. Maybe that's a, an obvious thing to say. I think I came in this morning impressed by one facet of the character of God, but His holiness has uh, blown me away this morning. And I hope you as well. How are we? You good? You good? Oh, good. I'm going to leave the announcements to the bulletin. I will welcome you if you are here for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time. We're glad you're here. And I hope that you find this to be a place where God's Spirit resides among His people. I hope you to find this as a as a place of peace and rest and hope for a new day. Amen. I hope uh, even if this is not your church family, that you're made to feel like family this morning. Above all, I hope that you, uh, you find that the Lord, our holy God, is made out to be just that, holy. Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, and last week I didn't get to finish my message. So this week, I don't really have to preach a new message except to catch you up on last week's message. And then I just got to finish last week's message. But somehow, every time that happens, I come up with a whole new message. So don't worry, we'll still be here longer than you expect. Ephesians chapter 4, we can't seem to get past the first 16 verses here, but I'm going to try and do it this morning. And I'm going to do it via 1 Corinthians. So just hold on. If, If you're new this morning, let me catch you up. Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul, Paul calls himself a POW of the Lord. And when you're a POW of the Lord, you get to ask certain things that the common man doesn't get to ask. Amen? When you've lost an arm or a leg, when you've served, you get to, you get to call upon the fellow soldiers to do some extraordinary things. And Paul has done some amazing things, and he calls out to the church through Ephesus all the way down through the ages to you and I, and he says, Church, how are you going to respond I've preached Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to you. Now, church, how are you going to respond to the great love that your God has had for you? Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Here's the greatness. Here's the extravagance of God's love poured out through His grace to you, to Jew and Gentile alike. Here's the extent that He has gone to save the whole world if only they would come. Now, you who name the name of Christ, how will you live out the rest of your life knowing Whose you are. Knowing whose you are. I mean, what will your life look like tomorrow? In, in, a, in a trimmed down way, it would be like me saying to you, which I often do at the end of this message. All right, now that you've heard this teaching, what are you going to do tomorrow? Don't leave here having heard this and act like it doesn't mean anything or affect you out there. It's got to do something out there or we've wasted our time here and I'd rather be fishing. Or whatever it is that you might do. So when we get to chapter 4 now for the rest of the book, he's looking at us and he's saying, what are you going to do with what I've told you? In Paul's words, he's saying, how are you going to walk this thing out? How are you going to walk in a manner that parallels God's great love and mercy and grace poured out for you in the person of Jesus Christ? How are you going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called? And then he starts to give some advice. He says, here's where I'd start. I'd start with things like humility. 
gentleness. Now, remember, he could have went anywhere, right? I mean, if you're Paul, you can ask anything of us at this point. If you see God for who he is, you can ask anything of me now, God. Where does Paul go? Number one, he goes to things like, surprisingly enough, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance to one another in love. He says, preserve the unity that Christ has purchased for you. You need an example? Look to the Trinity. In the Trinity, we see diversity in purpose, but unity in person. They're one. Then he turns to Jesus himself and he says, listen, he's he's the chief, he's the captain, he is the victor over sin and death. He won the war and now he's distributed the winnings. He said, well, what did I get? I, well, maybe you got this. Maybe you got that. And he goes through now a shortened list, the gifts of the Spirit that now Jesus has the right to give out as the champion. And Paul uses this to say, now listen, we are all one. Even though you've gotten this individual gift, don't forget, verse 12, chapter 4, that it's all for the equipping of the saints. It's all for the mending of the body of Christ. You don't have your gift just for you. You have your gift so that we all get better, so that we all get fixed, mended, encouraged, blessed. So even your individuality is for the unity. Preserve the unity. Um, that's where we left off. 14. Ephesians 4, verse 14. If we do our job, If you do your job, if I do my job, what should happen in the body of Christ is that we become equipped. In 13, he says, we do our job until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That means we all come to a common understanding of what the faith is, of what salvation is. And then until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. That means until we all respond appropriately to knowing who and what the Son has done. That's when we're done. In a word, until we're all mature, he says in verse 13. He said, what is mature? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Maturity is in a name, in a person, it's Jesus himself. So until we all reach the full stature of Jesus, we're not mature. Okay. But remember, we're all doing our job for the building up of the common unity. What's the result? If we are doing our job, verse 14, as a result, you're mature, you're not kids anymore. So as we look around, we start seeing people mature. We're not seeing infants and toddlers anymore. We don't see grown men and women in diapers anymore. Spiritually speaking, we mature. We, we grow out of that. That's the goal. That's what we should be seeing in the body of Christ as we all interact. We all utilize that thing that, that Christ has won and gifted us with for the betterment of the body. Now that's what's happening. As a result, Paul says, you're no longer children. You're being matured, 14. So that when you go back out there, church, you're not. Here's the picture he gives. It, it, it's, a, it's a nautical picture. So you're not tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. The picture he paints is that when you go back out there, it's like a storm. And you better have the unity of the faith, that truth of what our faith is, those basic doctrines that we hold to. You better be growing in those things. You better be growing in a response to what you know about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you so that you're not like an infant when you go back out there being tossed to and fro. You're not like, remember I said last week, my younger son in the wave pool. Just getting thrown wherever the waves decide to take him. 
How do I know I'm maturing? You quit getting tossed around out there. Well, what kind of guys are out there? He tells us. Remember, end of verse 14. You got guys out there that are tricksters. They're crafty. They're deceitful. And they're scheming. And you say truth is this. And they say truth is that. And they're hiding something up this sleeve. And they're manipulating here. And it's sleight of hand here. Using different words here that sound a whole lot alike. But maybe it's a little different. You've got you've to mature through that. And you've got to be able to see through that. You can't be taken by the tricksters. You can't fall to their craftiness. You've got to be able to see through that. As a child, you're going to fall prey to that. You're going to fall prey to that, right? That's why we tell our children, don't talk to strangers. Why? Because they're children. They don't have sense enough to know this guy is safe and this guy's not. Look, kid, come look at my little puppy here. Isn't he cute? Right? Craftiness. We warn children about things like this. As you mature, those things become more obvious. We've got to grow. Not tossed to and fro. Not taken by these kind of guys. 15, instead, we speak the truth. That's what we're doing here. We're speaking the truth. Follow along with me now. We are to grow up in all aspects into him. Who's the him? The capital H? Jesus, the model of a mature man. Who is the head? Head of what? The body of which we are a part. In a name, it's Christ. 16, from whom the whole body, that's all of us, being fitted and held together by every joint that supplies. That means every, every little piece, whatever part you play. According to the proper working of each individual part, that means we're all doing our job to the best of our ability. We're not trying to do someone else's job necessarily. We're doing our job. And when we all function correctly, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. Growth. Growth. Now, I skipped two phrases in those last two verses. Did you catch it? It does not say, but speaking the truth, we grow up in all aspects and to him who is the head, even Christ. It does not say it causes the growth at the end of 16 of the body for the building up of itself. It says more than that. You get caveats, don't you? It would have made complete sense for Paul to have just said, but speaking the truth, we're not tricksters, we're not crafty, we're not deceitful or scheming. We speak truth here. And by truth, we grow up in all aspects unto him. We reach our goal by the truth. We have different men, gifted, apostles, prophets. They raise up the truth. They bring forth the truth. The evangelists, they spread the truth. Pastors, teachers, we mature people in the truth. We train up in the truth. We've got everybody teaching towards the truth. It would have made perfect sense for him just to say, Speaking the truth, we grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. But it doesn't say that. It says, but speaking the truth, oh, by the way, in love. And it doesn't say at the end of 16, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself, period. It says for the building of itself in love. Now, uh, if you get our weekly email, I, uh, I gave the person who sends out our email a little heads up because I had a suspicion of where this message would go today. And what I said uh, for her to put in that email was something to the effect of, this may not be the best. And I'm sure this morning it's not going to be the best message I've ever preached. But I'm for absolute sure that it might be one of the most important messages, at least of this year, if not maybe of all the messages 
perhaps I preached. So you're not going to get any colorful, great illustrations this morning. Those have kind of gone by the wayside. Because I, I think we've got to focus here in on, on what may be, if missed, the detriment of the body of Christ and the glory of God. You see, if we simply are a body who come together and we use all of our giftings to champion truth and truth alone, and we leave out in love, then we fail miserably. And if I'm the guy out there, I don't want any part of it in here. It's no mistake that as Paul is championing the unity of the body here in Ephesians chapter 4, as the first way we walk out a response to his love for us, there's no mistake that it's all wrapped up, tied up, covered up in this umbrella of our love for one another. You see, because you can do your job, but if you don't do your job with the heart and motive, with this, with this underlying current of love, then it doesn't matter. Now, by this time, if you know your Bible, you're thinking of other verses maybe. The truth is that Ephesians chapter 4 here, I believe the first half at least, is a parallel to a couple other passages. But my mind keep going, keeps going to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, uh, even before that, uh, all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you, wanna, if you want an expanded version of Ephesians, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 all the way through 14 or 15. And you're going to hear some of the same arguments some of the same purposes in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. So this morning, how am I going to finish up what I missed last week? What I missed last week was getting an opportunity to highlight truth in love, getting an opportunity to say building up of ourselves has to be done in love. And so today, here's how I'm going to do it. We're going to jump ship of Ephesians, and I want to show the expanded version. First Corinthians, turn to chapter 12 with me. After Romans, you get First and Second Corinthians, chapter twelve. Paul is in, for the sake of simplicity, he's in a similar place. He's in a similar argument, so to speak, in his writing to the Corinthians as he was to the Ephesians. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts, and he's going to talk about them at length. But to a great degree, his point isn't going to be about spiritual gifts. He's going to make a point about love. He's going to talk about the wisdom that love carries beyond the impressiveness of any job that you or I might carry in the body of Christ. Pick up in chapter 12, uh, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Paul says this, now you are Christ's body and individually you're members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Same language here. He even puts these things in an order for you, a hierarchy, if you will. And then he's going to group a bunch more of the gifts together. And so you get sort of an order here, and it starts with those who, who deal in the truth, the dispensing, the teaching, the edifying of the truth. Apostles, prophets, teachers. And then you got guys who are the miracle workers, and then you got guys who have the gifts of healings, and then you got guys who are in the area of helps, you got guys who are in the area of administrations, you got various kinds of tongues that are giftings of the church. 
Point being, there's a whole gamut of gifts that Jesus, the champion of the war, has handed out now. 29. He asks a question here, and it's a rhetorical question, and the answer in Paul's mind, and it should be on the tip of your tongue, is no in each case. Verse 29, are all not apostles, are they? No, they're not, is the answer. All are not prophets, are they? The answer is no. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not have the gifts of healing? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. All don't interpret it? No. No. The answer is no. The simple point is, we don't all, we don't all look the same, and we don't all carry the same job in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen, we should say. Verse 30. 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Another message for another day. Back in chapter 14, he's going to use some same, uh, the same language of desiring earnestly. And he's going to clarify what those greater gifts are and how that pans out. Another sermon for another day. Look at his next line here. 31. And I show you now still a more excellent way. Uh, in other words, Paul's going to say, with all these different giftings, let me, let me show you how to walk this thing out. And not just in the way we would naturally walk it out, which would be colliding with each other every now and then. Amen. Let me show you the, the excellent way for all this to pan out in the body of Christ. All right. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we get kind of this parentheses before he goes on to explain what the greater gifts are and how the gifts are to play out in the church and specifically where this one fits and specifically how we're to deal with this and that and the other. You get this, you might call again, a caveat. You get these parentheses that is chapter 13. And it's kind of like in Ephesians 4 where he says, speak the truth, but then he throws in there in love, building up the body till we reach the maturity. But then he adds on in love. We get a whole chapter now of what in love means. You see what I'm talking? You see where I'm going? Chapter 13, maybe you know it. Maybe uh, some of you have heard it recently if you've been to a wedding. It is by far used over and over in more weddings than in any other teaching we have in the church. 1 Corinthians 13, it's the love chapter maybe you've heard. This morning I want to challenge you. Um, as best you can, try not to think of love this morning as that mushy, sentimental, uh, as in the notebook kind of movie, love, okay? Because love is, love is so much more than that. As best you can, try and think of love this morning um, as like, guys, maybe like the coolest multi-tool you've ever had. Or maybe if you're, if you're into like weapons, guys, maybe, and I'm focusing on the guys because the ladies, you have an easier time at this love thing. Guys, maybe you got to think about it like this massive, uh, the most powerful weapon of warfare you can, you can imagine that you could hold with two hands. Think of love as something you battle with, church. Think of love as something you wield, not something you hold close. It is your greatest spiritual warfare weapon, church. No other gift of the Spirit can match the weapon of love. It blows any other gift you might have out of the water. Without it, none of the other gifts work properly. With it, they all function as they should. You tracking with me? 1 Corinthians 13 is not just a passage you read at your wedding. 
1 Corinthians 13 primarily is pointed at the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, defining love is for us in the body to know how to walk in a manner worthy to preserve the unity of the faith together without killing one another. So all that you've thought about 1 Corinthians 13 related to weddings and marriage, that's all true. And that's a great sample of how this type of love plays itself out in the home, but it has to play itself out in God's house as well. So shelf for this morning, that wedding passage. And keep on the front of your mind that this passage wants to say something to you and I about how we grow to maturity together as we're all being equipped, mended as saints, preserving the unity, growing up into the maturity that is Jesus Christ, we've got to have this in love chapter right here. Now, look at what he says. The first thing he's going to say is that love is preeminent. It's preeminent. It means it's more important than anything else. If I speak with tongues of men, he's going to mention some gifts here. And of angels, if you can speak more languages than you know names for, but you do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Remember a few weeks ago, the title of the message was Rhythm. We talked about the church being a symphony. Symphony is having the same notes, having the same melody. It's not this guy playing his instrument and this guy banging away at his instrument and we compete to see who gets heard. It's one guy being louder than another. The church is to be a symphony, not us banging away at pots and pans in here, clanging, just making an awful noise that we don't even want to listen to, much less people out there wanting to listen to. We're to be a symphony in the church. Speaking tongues, all kinds, whatever kinds, more than the angels, but you do not have love. What is it? Just noise. It's an irritating noise. Even. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if you've got truth nailed down, I mean, if you've got a hold of your Bible and you think you've got doctrine memorized, but you have no love. Look at what it says. You've got the mysteries of the knowledge, and if you have all faith so as to remove mountains, if you can, if you can, if you can participate in the body of Christ to that degree, wow, that would be impressive, wouldn't it? That by your faith you could move mountains, that you could do the miraculous. I mean, that's something to look to. But Paul says, you know, you know what I added up to be? What does he say? Nothing. Nothing. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and he's going to ramp up here, watch this. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, would that impress you? It would impress me. If I hear that one of you gives everything you've got away to the poor, I'll be impressed. Unless I find out, and you would be impressed, unless you found out about me, that I had some sort of ulterior motive that my heart wasn't quite what I facaded it to be, you would not be impressed. Does God see through those things? He sure does. Does Paul? He does. 
You give all your possessions to feed the poor. If you even go a step further, if you surrender your body to be burned, anybody willing to do that today? I don't know that I'm ready to go that far. But Paul says, even if you're willing to go that far, anybody? Probably no takers. But even if you did, but you do not have love, you don't have that caveat. If you're missing that thing, what is it? It profits you nothing. It profits you nothing. What does that mean? You may get the applause of men here on earth, but when you stand before God, God's going to say, you know what? You got your applause. I see your heart. I see that you did not do that out of love. Maybe there was selfishness here. Maybe there was a false motive here. Maybe you wanted to be elevated in these eyes. You've got your reward. You've got your reward. That's what it means by it profits you nothing. You see this great caveat here? I mean, we, we, can, we can do our thing very impressively, church. However God has gifted you, whatever your talents are, whatever your ability is, however it is God's wired you to participate in this body, you could do it well. You can perform. But, and this is why I say that this might be one of the most important messages I preach. Because if we miss this, and we're just making a bunch of noise. We're just giving away stuff with no real eternal significance to it. That's, that's how Paul would say love is preeminent. It's more important than anything else. It trumps everything else. Now, look at the pattern of love. You say, well, what does love look like, Paul? He's going to tell you. Here's the pattern of love. Verse 4. Love is a few things, and it is not a few things. Here's the list. Set that wedding picture on the shelf. This is for you, church. This is for us, for the body of Christ, for the bride of Christ, to preserve the unity. What do we need? We need love that is patient. And by the way, every time you see love mentioned here, it is the word agape. It's the word used for the godly love, not a brotherly love, not an not a erotic love. It's the, it's the divine love. It's the love to be desired aspired to in the church. Love is, number one, it's patient. Is that how you walk it out? Do you walk out your calling in a worthy manner in love by being patient? Or are you or are you short in your patience? Um, patience is a compound word in the Greek. It, uh, it's, a, it's a combination of a couple words. One of the words means big or large, or long, or far. It's the word macro. You've heard of it, as opposed to micro. Macrothume. It means to be long-spirited. That means that you can, you can hang on for a long time. You've got a, you've got a big spirit. You're not, you're not wired with a short fuse. That you're not sitting around anxious for someone to respond to you in love, but you're able to wait. And if they're not responding to you in love, you're still able to wait. You can love patiently. Your love's not simply based upon are they giving you love, but you're able to wait, even if they don't. Your love can be patient. It's not a tennis match for you. They send some love my way, I'll send some love back their way. Now, even if, even if they don't, you are big-spirited. Love is also kind. This means that we're sensitive to the feelings of others. 
And uh, these may be obvious, but are they easy? They are not. They are not. And they're honestly often the most difficult with the people we say we love the most. Amen? How about, Paul says, how about we walk out our love by being kind? Are we talking about anything grandiose theologically here? No, we're not. How about we just be kind to one another? How about that we have a sensitivity in our spirits that we notice what's going on in the heart of another person? Sometimes I wonder if we ever give another thought to what is going on in the heart and mind of another person when we say some of the things that we say. You ever wonder about that? I wonder about it sometimes with some of you. You wonder about it sometimes with some of you. We all wonder about it. I mean, isn't it amazing sometimes the things we say without any gentleness, without any kindness, without any thought to maybe what is that going to do in the heart of that other person? Paul says love thinks about those things. There's a kindness in love. Love is also not jealous. The word there is a picture of something that boils over. That's not what our love looks like. It's not something that is exploding. It's not envious. It's not spiteful. Have you ever heard of uh, someone talk about their ex? (laughs) Yeah? That's a great picture of what it means to be jealous. They can't find anything good to say, can they? And even the things that they find good to say are wrapped in something critical, right? It's all too common. You want, to, you want a picture of what it means to be jealous? Well, I ran into so-and-so, and yeah, she's with this new guy, and he's blah, blah, blah. You want, there, there's a picture of jealousy. That's not what love is. Love doesn't go there. Love doesn't boil over and just fall out of the pot indiscriminately. It's, it's thoughtful. It's controlled. Amen? It's controlled. It doesn't just explode in jealousy or envy or spite. It also does not brag. That means it's not calling attention to itself. How helpful would it be if in the body of Christ, for the preservation of our unity, none of us called attention to ourselves? How helpful would it be, Christians, if among Christians we had nothing in us that pointed back to us? Would unity be a lot easier? It sure would be. Where do we start to have problems? When in maybe even not so obvious of a way, we're calling attention to ourselves. Well, you know, there's error over here. But you know what? There's none here. I mean, I'm not even going to attempt to try and give you the number of examples that may be in your heart for how you violated this principle of love. I know how my heart tries to violate it. I know how I try and even even underhandedly try and raise up self over others. And maybe you've got to spend a little time this week thinking and asking God, God, where, where, am I, where am I calling attention to myself? It's a picture of filling a balloon up with air. Where am I, where am I, where am I expanding my own stature among my fellow Christians? Where am I boasting? It's also not arrogant, church. To be arrogant is similar to boasting. It means to be inflated. 
be puffed up with pride, to think more of self than one ought to. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says knowledge puffs up. You may know a whole lot of stuff. But there's a danger. There's a danger there, even in knowledge, even in truth. Is there danger? There sure is. Because it can puff you up to the degree. And guess what? Love is pushed right out. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love builds up. What's the goal? Ephesians 4, building up the body of Christ in love. Be careful. Be careful if you have a tendency towards arrogance because you know a whole lot of stuff. Guess what? You can know a whole lot of stuff biblically, theologically, and be a part of this body. And that may even be how God has wired you, but you have to be careful because you can blow right past any ability to make a difference in the body when you don't cover it with love. It's not arrogant. It's also not unbecoming. Unbecoming means ugly, disgraceful, dishonorable. You ever had, you ever had, and you're growing up, some of you older folks maybe, uh, you're eating dinner and your mom just say, you're, you're just being ugly. Just stop being ugly. It's kind of a southern thing. That, that's the word here. It's to say to our child when we're in public at the dinner table, listen, you can't act like that. It's dishonorable. It's disgraceful to the body at large, to the family at large. Stop being ugly. That's what it means to be unbecoming. It's that our actions are unbecoming of the family. That's not what love looks like. Keep going. Love doesn't seek its own. What does that mean? Pretty obvious. But maybe you have to ask it in the form of a question to your own heart. Are you seeking your own interests in any way, in any form, in any fashion? If you are, you're not helping to preserve the unity, simply put. You're going to do more to hamper the unity of the body if you seek your own interest. Instead, why don't you think of the other's needs? Why don't you let the other's good be more important than your own self? Does that, does that help us preserve the unity? You better believe it. If we walk in love in a way that fleshes out that we're not just seeking our own good, but we're, we're aware of what the good of the other needs to be, we're preserving the unity. Love is not easily provoked. What if in the body of Christ we could not be so easily provoked? <laughs> I mean, deacons would all get along. Board members of committees would all get along. But isn't it easy? The word provoke means to, it's kind of the idea of poking another with our words, with our actions, just so they'll respond, just so they'll spout out. What do we need in the church to preserve the unity? Under the auspices of love, we need to not be people who are easily provoked. So how about if somebody doesn't return your call within, you know, the two hours that you expected they should return your call? How about you, you cut them some slack? How about when somebody doesn't stop and say hello to you in the hall and you assume that maybe they ignored you when maybe they just didn't even see you? How about you just cut them some slack? How about we don't be easily provoked to blow up on one another, church? Would that help preserve the unity? It sure would. That would be walking in love, not easily provoked. How about we keep no record of wrongs in the church? Would that help? It sure would. You know what it means? It's, a, it's an accounting term. Legizomai 
is the Greek word. It means to count, to calculate, to enumerate, to record, or to list. Do we ever do that with other Christians? Do we keep a a running tab of the times they've let us down or the time they've not measured up? Do we do that in the body? We sure do. Is that love? It is not. Does God, God do that with us? He does not. How does he deal with us? He wipes the list clean. He deals with us in grace. You know what God has given us? Maybe this is a poor analogy. I haven't thought it fully out. But it's as if God in his love gives us a credit card with no limit. What if we could give each other a credit card with no limit? Instead of keeping track, holding a list. Are you holding a list on anybody today? Of maybe where they've fallen short, maybe where they don't measure up? We can't do that. That doesn't preserve the unity. That's not walking in love. How about we rejoice over righteousness instead of rejoicing over unrighteousness? Um, Have you ever found that in your own heart you get a little excited when something goes a little bit wrong for somebody else? Now, we'll probably not have anybody raise their hand to admit that one because we're getting a little deeper here, aren't we? But if you're like me, and if you were honest, you'd have to say that sometimes, sometimes we get a little smile, even if we don't show it, when someone else falls. Why? Because it makes me feel a little better. It makes me feel a little closer to perfect when those around me aren't so perfect. Paul says, is that love? That's not love. Is that the heart of God for you? That's not the heart of God for you. Why don't we stop rejoicing over over someone else's unrighteousness? That's not love. That's not agape. Instead, how about we bear all things? The word stego in the Greek, great word. To bear all things, church, means to cover, to shelter, to guard. The noun form of this word in the Greek would be translated a roof, like the roof over your house. That's what love is called to be over other people in the body of Christ. God is asking you, in love, why don't you cover that guy? Why don't you shelter him? Why don't you guard him? Instead of exposing him to the elements, why don't you cover him? Proverbs ten twelve. Hatred stirs up strife. We like to stir up strife? We sure do. We sure do. What does love do? Proverbs 10. Love covers all offenses. What does love do? Love puts a roof over it. Do you have gaps? You sure do. Do I have gaps? I sure do. What do I need from you? Do I need you to point them out? Sometimes. Do I need you to put a billboard up about them? Never. You know what I need? I need you to, I need you to be willing to cover them with me. If there are gaps that I can't cover. Would you, would you in grace and in love, would you cover them? What if, what if the body of Christ could cover each other in that way? What if we could not just recognize each other's gaps and shortcomings, But what if we could cover each other? That would go a long way to preserving unity. Bear all things. Believes all things. Here's what this means. It means that we have faith. It means that we trust. It means that we we don't yield to the suspicions of doubt. Believes all things. 
How about you give the guy next to you the benefit of the doubt when he says, this is truth. I did this, I didn't do this. I meant to say this, I didn't mean to say this. I may have offended you here, I didn't mean it. How about instead of you playing Holy Spirit and saying, I know exactly what you meant. I know what's in your heart. The Bible says we don't know what's in the heart of another man. Only the Spirit knows. And only the man himself actually knows what's going on. So how about we give each other the benefit of the doubt? Paul says that agape love, our first instinct should be to believe. That's what you're saying? I'm going to believe you. How hard is that? To give the benefit of the doubt? That's hard. If we can do that, does that preserve the unity? You better believe if we can, if we can start doing that, believing one another, instead of jumping to conclusions about each other's motives, mistakes, etc. We've got to believe each other. It bears all things, believes all things. Luther put it this way. Love will prompt one to do the following for a brother. Excuse him, speak well of him, and put the best construction on everything. Put the best construction on everything. You know what that means? It means to be, give the benefit of the doubt. It's to see the glass half full and not half empty in your brethren. It hopes all things. That means it's a mystic. To love each other means that, that you're not negative with one another. To be pessimistic or negative means that you're expecting the worst in one another. How can we be unified if every time you look at the guy next to you, you're expecting the worst? How about we hope? Love also endures all things. To endure means to literally remain under the load. It means instead of tossing the heavy weight that it is to love one another because it is sometimes a heavy load. Instead of tossing it, we carry the weight. Church, can we carry each other's weight Sometimes shouldering the burden of love for one another is hard. Sometimes you need to come to the altar during prayer and just say, God, I'm not doing a good job of loving my brethren. It's hard. I'm faltering under the weight. Can you help me? Lord, fill me up with some of your love so that I can endure, so that I don't just have to drop this guy and walk away. Are we heavy sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. Finally, that's the pattern of love. Let me tell you, Paul says that love now, verse 13, love is permanent. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does it say? Love is permanent. But now faith, hope, love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is love love. Love is patient, kind, jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, not ugly, doesn't seek its own, doesn't provoke easily, does not take into account wrong, suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, it endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails. Love never fails. You know what it means by fails? It means that um, it never becomes null and void. It doesn't just mean that it, it never gives up. It doesn't mean that it never stops. The point here is, is that all these other gifts and things, 
they're going to go away. But as we move into eternity from our temporal lives right now, guess what? There are some things that last forever, he explains. If there are gifts of prophecy, verse 8, they will all be done away with. If there are gifts of tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it'll go away too. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That just means that we don't know all the hidden things about our God. We have a perfect and inerrant word, but there are mysteries of God that he has not yet shown us. We know in part. But when the perfect comes, who's the perfect? That'd be Jesus in his perfect timing. The partial will be done away with. What we know in part will be made full. Give you an illustration, verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. Does this remind you of any other passage? Ephesians chapter 4, maybe? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. You look into a mirror, and it's a cloudy mirror. It's a dim mirror. What do you have to do? You have to lean forward, and you have to look hard. You've got to study well. Is that what we do now with truth? That's what we do now with truth. We study well. We look into the Word of God like this mirror that's dim, and we've got truth. Do we have the whole truth about God yet? Not yet. Paul says we have it in part. There are mysteries of God that have yet not, not yet been revealed to us. When the perfect comes, guess what? We get it all. We get it all. Right now, we're looking into that dim mirror. But then I will know fully, just as also I have been known fully. There's coming a time when all those things that are pointing us towards truth will go away. Um, we'll not need prophecy anymore. We'll not need words of knowledge anymore. Why? Because it'll be obvious. We won't be looking into a mirror dimly. We'll see face to face the truth, like Moses did with God. We'll see the truth face to face. It'll become obvious. So those things are going to go away. That's his point. All these gifts that you're fighting over and wanting and desiring and elevating above each other, guess what? Those things are going away. Here's the point. Some things won't go away. Faith won't go away. Go away. Hope won't go away. Love won't go away. Why? We'll carry the foundation of our faith into eternity. We move into eternity based on our faith. We look forward to eternity in our hope. And love, the greatest of all these three, will never terminate. It doesn't stop. Tongues will stop. Prophecy, knowledge, this gift, that gift won't be needed anymore. You know what we're still going to have in heaven? We're still going to have current, that undercurrent of love. Love is permanent. Now, where does the power come from? I'll give you one more P for your list here. Love is eminent. He gave us the pattern of love. He's told us that love is permanent. It's the one thing that will not go away. Our faith, in a sense, we're, still, we're not going to need faith in the same way we do now. We're not going to need to hope when we see face-to-face like we do now. In a sense, those things even are lesser to love as we move into eternity. So where does the power to play this whole thing out in love? Where does it come from? Because by now you should be thinking, you know what? Uh, I don't have that kind of love in me. And you're right, you do not. Except that you have Christ in you. Save that Christ is in you, you cannot measure up the love is patient, kind, not jealous. Because in you, love is not patient. Love is not naturally kind. 
It is not naturally not jealous. You are all those things. I am all those things. Only that Christ be in us do we have the power to achieve these things. God himself, Scripture says, is love. He sent his son in love. He saved us in love. Love has, in fact, already achieved achieved the impossible in us, has it not? Where does the power for us to play this love out, to walk this love out come from? Here it is. That God is love. The creator of love. The one who is love. The one who has saved you by his love has already, in love, done the most impossible thing. What is that? He saved us. He saved you. He saved me. If love has the power to do that, does love have the power to preserve the unity of the body? It does. You see, love... God's love could save a wretched sinner like me and like you. And so it has the power to trump everything that might go wrong in the church. So use your gift, but wrap it in love. Cover it in love. If you don't, it's useless. Not only will it be useless, but it can be disruptive to the body. It can be disruptive to the body. Paul said that the love of God compels him. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought lay down our lives for the brethren. Let's pray. Lord, this sort of love is beyond us, but we are capable because of the power of of your love that resides in us through the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ. So we we stop this week and we, we detour out of Ephesians because there's a caveat of your love. It's a weapon and a trump card that we uh, that we need to be willing to play and play often. It's a credit account that we need to be able to extend to each other. Lord, love is not easy, and it's a choice. And um, if it's missing, no matter what our heart is drawn to, spiritually speaking, Lord, if love's not central, then we're going in the wrong direction. We know love that that you laid down your life for us. Now we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Would you make it true of us that love begins to look like these things? And as they become true, Father, we will will preserve the unity that you have won in Christ. In Jesus' name. We're going to end where we have to begin. We have to begin with the power source, which is our motive towards loving one another. Um, The Bible says in the Gospels that those who have been forgiven much have this uncanny ability to be able to love much. So a couple practical secrets right here for you as you go. How do you pull off this kind of love? Remember your chain. 
Remember all that God has freed you of. Remember all those things that God has loved you in spite of. That's secret number one. Tip number two, take a look at God's love for you. In the light of his love for you, it's really hard not to turn around and express that love to those who are around us. Amen? So we're going to end singing about the love of God. Why don't you stand? And as you uh, pray, here's your challenge. Consider the love of God. And the simple question is, does your life reflect an understanding of that great love? Or does your life simply look like what you want it to look like? Are you focused on your own plans? Is it about self? Hard questions to ask. God, where is my life about me? Or, God, where do I need to focus on you so that my life gets an adjustment, gets sharpened? I want to be a part of the body that preserves the unity. It all has to happen in love. It's the umbrella that covers it all. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.